Hi, and welcome to this episode of All Things Apostolic. We're going to be talking today and for the next couple of days about Generation Z, also known as Gen Z, and looking at some really relevant research to help us find out more information about this important population. Hi, I'm Jennifer Barrett, and thank you for joining me on today's All Things Apostolic. So we're going to be talking about Generation Z, or Gen Z, and this is a topic of great interest to me personally because I'm an educator, I am the Executive Vice President of Wilson University and have been working in higher ed for about 25 years, and prior to that I worked in K-12 education, and I'm also the parent of a Gen Z teenager. So let's begin first by defining what we mean by Gen Z, or also sometimes called Zoomers. So when we look at different generations, they've, they've been grouped um, by time periods. These categories are somewhat typical, but depending on the source, there might be some debate about where the exact cutoffs are for some of these categories. So baby boomers are usually categorized as after World War II, roughly 1946 to 1964. Then we have Generation X, they're 1965 to 1980. I'm part of Generation X. Then we have Generation Y, also known as millennials. They're 1981 to 1996, roughly. And then we have the generation we're talking about, which is Generation Z, also known as post-millennials. And most people categorize this group as having begun in 1997. Now, we're going to be talking about research today from a particular person, and he categorizes these a little bit different. He says that the previous generation ended in 1994, the millennials, and Gen Z started in 1995. So he sets the marker just a little bit different and that's kind of critical for, for the research that we're going to be talking about today. The main thing that sets Gen Z different from all of the other people is that they have never known the world without the internet. And so roughly right now, they're between the ages of 11 and 26. A researcher who has studied Gen Z and has written on the topic is Jonathan Haidt. I recently saw a presentation by him and he presented research that intrigued me. He is a prominent American social psychologist and he is the author of a number of books. He is also, in full disclosure, he is a secular Jew, so he's not personally religious, but he has expressed an appreciation for the social and psychological benefits of religion. Now, Jonathan Haidt has been speaking in various presentations and interviews about Gen Z and promoting his latest research, which is going to be coming out in a soon-to-be-published book called The Anxious Generation, which looks at trends in Gen Z, including mental health. So let's look at the first slide. I'm basically going to be presenting his information that he has been sharing publicly, and uh, this is coming from his upcoming book. So we're going to start by looking at this data and analyzing the trends that he's been seeing specifically in Gen Z. So in this first chart, he shares data from an annual survey conducted by the American College of Health Association. 
This data shows trends beginning back as early as 2010, but especially escalating from 2013 onward. The two key areas are the skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression. Now, the period of 2010 to 2013 is shaded because Jonathan Haidt's hypothesis is that this period, which he calls the great rewiring, is when childhood started to change. This is the first generation that went through puberty, basically tethered to their phones. So we're just beginning from research studies to get a fuller picture of the ramifications of this. The implications of growing up in an environment in which technology is always on are just now beginning to be fully realized. Recent research shows dramatic shifts in behaviors, attitudes, and lifestyles, some of which are positive and some that are a grave concern. So now let's look at slide number two. A U.S. national survey on drug use and health also confirms huge growth in the rates of depression among U.S. teens. And the climbing begins in that same shaded window that we saw in slide one. Both males and females are experiencing increased rates in depression and anxiety, but especially in girls. So roughly 40% of American girls suffer from clinically diagnosable anxiety or depression. Haidt contends that, and I quote him, being anxious and depressed is a normal part of being an American girl now. It wasn't like that before 2012. And I want to caution that this is not everyone who's part of Gen Z. What we're looking at are trends in the full population of Gen Z. Now, some argue that some of the data we've been looking at is self-reported data from surveys. So these are actually people filling out surveys about themselves. So they're saying, well, you know, now people are more comfortable with sharing uh, how they feel about things. And so um, is this really a reflection of reality? Or is it just because there's more self-reporting going on? Well, let's take a look at slide three. And what it shows is that the mental health crisis does correlate to behavior. In this chart, we see that suicide rates have skyrocketed as well, especially in girls beginning in 2012. There have been increasing rates also of self-harm. And interestingly, this data is not unique to the United States, but these trends are in a number of other developed countries as well. So we can't just say that the root cause is something specific to the social, economic, or political situation here in the U.S. because these trends are found elsewhere as well. So what explains these trends? Well, according to Haidt, the best theory that explains why the same phenomenon happened in the same way around the same time in a number of countries across the globe is that we've lost play-based childhood and now people experience a phone-based childhood and it has altered their development. So next we're going to be looking at a slide and this shows us about the waves of when the internet came into being. 
So we're basically seeing the personal computer and the internet coming in around the 1980s and 1990s. And then later, around 2010 or so, we have the smartphone and social media. And so you, this chart is helping to show that there's really two waves of the internet and how those specific technologies developed. So what we see with this chart is that uh, children initially had access to the internet, but they're going to be in their living room um, and limited access as people are slowly getting computers in their household. Whereas by the time that we have smartphones and uh, social media, then we see that young people are having access to the internet all the time. And notice again that it's happening in that shaded area that height uh, recognizes or argues is really the key time when something changed and there was a national or international rewiring of childhood. So now we need to take a moment to define social media. For Height's research, he's not referring to something like WhatsApp or texting because that's direct interaction between people. So this discussion is not about texting, FaceTime, Zoom, or anything like that. It's not about the internet in general, such as Google. This is about programs like Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok that use algorithms to feed things to our children. So our young people are not in control of what they're seeing on those platforms. A corporation is in control. So what are the results? Now, height identifies a number of harms to children. This is a chart of five foundational harms to kids who have a phone-based childhood, meaning they have constant access to the internet. So five foundational harms are, one, an opportunity cost, and height explains that preteens are literally connected to the internet about seven hours a day. And uh, high school students, about nine hours a day. So think about that lost opportunity because of the amount of time being wasted by being on social media. Another harm is social deprivation. Time with friends is down 65% from 2010. And then also their sleep deprivation, which has been up sharply since 2013. They are uh, checking their phones as soon as they wake up. They're on their phones all day long and they're checking their phones just before they go to bed. And they're staying up long, long hours on social media. So there's a lot of sleep deprivation, which we know is detrimental in high school years. And then there's also attention fragmentation. They have a much, much harder time focusing because things are being changed on the screen and thrown at them in a very rapid manner, which has caused them to have fragmented attention. And then there's also behavioral addiction, especially in areas such as gaming. Um, they've been intentionally designed to be addictive. So these are five foundational harms.
and noticed that time with friends was already plummeting before COVID-19. So COVID-19 exacerbated their isolation, but didn't cause it. Young people had socially distanced themselves even before the COVID pandemic hit. There are additional harms specific to girls. One is visual social comparison. And of course, Instagram is the worst. Also is perfectionism because they're seeing everybody else posting the ideal and they're trying to look like that. A third one is relational aggression. Boys tend to be more physically aggressive, but girls can be more relationally aggressive and we see social media increasing that. Also, there is emotional contagion. Again, this is something that girls would be more susceptible to than boys. And girls are more susceptible to sociogenic mental illness. And then also girls are more subject to sexual predation and to harassment. Social media has caused girls to focus an inordinate amount of their attention on appearances. And girls should want to look good, but appearance should not be the main focus of their attention, especially when they're getting suggestions on their appearance from worldly examples. Also, emotional sensitivity typically is a more feminine a, a trait, but the platforms are playing off of it and they're weaponizing it. So now let's look at a list of additional harms that are specific to boys. One is that they have a tendency to retreat from the real world. Now that was already something that was occurring. Uh, gaming's been around for a long time, but it has definitely escalated. Boys would rather live in the virtual world than in the real world. Uh, the virtual world welcomes them like sirens. And there is porn addiction. And of course, we know this is bad, but porn addiction, um, it creates a warped sexual development, especially when I've done some, I've, I've seen some studies in which the amount of porn that male teens are watching and the level of explicitness of it is actually rewiring their brains. It's affecting the development of the brain. And it's so it's the porn addiction is um, just one aspect. It's a terrible one, but it's one aspect of what's happening with uh, Gen Z because of their addiction to social media. And of course, the online multiplayer video games. Boys become addicted to the dopamine hits. They become irritable and unhappy when they're not online and they withdraw from family and school. So ultimately, boys are failing to do the things that would turn them into men. Although anxiety and depression have increased for boys, the main harm is that they've become absorbed with this online world, especially through gaming. So they're not spending time learning the skills that will turn them into men and successful husbands and fathers. Boys are more likely to drop out of high school, they have higher rates of unemployment, and they are more likely than females to commit suicide. They're also less likely to ask for help if they're struggling with their mental health. 
So now we'll look at another chart, and this shows the results of high school seniors being asked on a scale of one to five, how much they agree with four self-derogatory statements. And examples of these statements include, sometimes I think I'm no good at all, or I feel like my life is not very useful. So they're asked these four statements, and they rank them on a scale of one to five, how important or how much do they relate to these statements. And you can see beginning in 1979 through 2011 that the numbers hovered around a two out of five. But then they really started climbing in all categories. But I want you to notice um, Jonathan Haidt has organized the data in a, in a special way that I want you to look closely at what each line represents. So students are asked if they come from a household that is liberal or conservative, and also whether religion is important to them. And on the right-hand side of the chart, we can see the four lines representing the four categories of the results. Notice that the teenagers in liberal households that are secular, meaning religion is not important to them, they struggle the most followed by conservative households that are also secular, in which religion does not play an important part. As of 2019, the ones struggling the least were raised in conservative homes and religion was important to them. This category of conservative and religious went up a little bit during the great rewiring also, but it's still doing much better than the other three categories. So why the discrepancy between these types of households? Well, Haidt's theory or hypothesis is that the teens from secular liberal households are caught up in their phones with no moorings, whereas conservative religious teens are still grounded, usually through their religious community and also through their families, which tend to be larger. So they have more of an anchor. Yes, they're still tethered to their phones, but they're also more anchored in their families and in their religious communities. Now, in his book, Haidt also lists some ways in which a phone-based childhood affects spiritual development. It affects shared sacredness, meaning that there's, and we know as apostolics, there is such a value of having a structure of time, space, and attention when we come together as a religious community in our worship of God. So if someone is really involved in social media, it harms that time given to shared sacredness. It also affects embodiment. It also harms the ability of young people to have stillness and silence and focus. It affects their ability to transcend themselves. It affects their ability to be slow to anger and quick to forgive. They also lose uh, some of the capacity to find the awe in nature. And we all know that we have a God-shaped whole, but when young people are on social media, they are filling that God-shaped hole with other things, such as TikTok. A phone-based childhood 
negatively impacts, basically blocks, each of these areas. Now, Haidt concludes that a foam-based life is spiritually deadening. He argues that the phones, because everything is easily accessible, meaning uh, it blurs the lines between the sacred and the non-sacred. Everything is available to them all the time, whenever they want it. And so the sacred and the non-sacred are blurred. Now, thankfully, as apostolics, I think we do a pretty good job of emphasizing the differences between the sacred and the non-sacred. Ultimately, phone-based childhood damages more the mental health. It also damages a child's education, their maturation to adulthood, it affects their social development, it harms their sexual development, it harms their civic development, and ultimately, which matters to us, their spiritual development. Now, Haidt argues that this explains why they're so easily manipulated on social media and why they have a big hole in their lives that they fill with political causes of the moment. So how can we protect our young people, a stable home environment, and a strong religious community are two of the most important ways. And the blessing for apostolics is that we support our families and we have a strong sense of community in our churches. We get together in person. Uh, we have a church culture and standards. We also have strong morals and values. And young people need those strong guidelines. And it's not all negative. I want to end with something positive. So there are some scholars who have also studied this generation, such as those at Stanford Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. Um, and they've written about what we know about Gen Z. Again, we're just starting to, to find out a lot of the data on this particular population. But their research is saying that a type Gen Zer is a self-driver who cares deeply about others, strives for a diverse community, is highly collaborative and social, values flexibility, relevance, authenticity, and non-hierarchical leadership. They developed ability with powerful digital tools at an early age. Like we mentioned before, they're really truly the first generation of digital natives. And so I did want to throw in, there are some people who are recognizing that there are positives with Gen Z. It's not all negative, but of course, the research that Jonathan Haidt and others are now beginning to sift through this data and notice trends for us, there are definitely some areas of grave concern. And with the foundation of all of this data, I'm going to be conducting two interviews with people who have expertise in this area. So I hope you'll be joining me to view those interviews.